Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, Women to Watch. Here's your host, Sue Rocco. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with me for another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. I'm thrilled to be back in the studio this evening, and I have a very special local guest with me tonight. Her name is Adrienne Kirby, and she is the chairman and CEO of Cooper University Healthcare, and she'll be with me in just a moment. Be sure to stay with us as we go into the breaks, where you'll hear from our watch team of contributors, bringing you up-to-date information and inspiration from their fields in health education, finance, technology, leadership, and diversity. And if you'd like to get in touch with any of our uh, watch team contributors or myself, feel free to reach out to me at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And if you're a social user, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at womentowatch.net. So now, without any further ado, I'd like to welcome to the show Adrian Kirby. Thank, Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. It's very nice to have you here, and I'm glad you could join me in the studio rather than calling in. It was, it was very nice to meet you in person. Um, I had some fun reading your bio, and um, a little bit about your background and upbringing reminded me a little bit of myself. I'm going to start with a quote. Um, you said, I recall being on the bad side of the nuns <laughs> at my Catholic grammar school. I was so happy when my parents allowed me to go to the public high school. That's so very true. Uh, I was uh, categorized early on as a chatterbox, and uh, many of the nuns did not like that. The problem I learned, though, is if you got uh, punished at school, and a lot of times that was a rap on the knuckles or sometimes a tug of the ear, Uh, I learned not to go home and tell my mother because she invariably sided with the nuns. I must have been doing something wrong. But even aside from that, uh, I did have a lot of fun in school, probably too much. And that's why I did uh, get on the bad side of the nuns. Yeah. Well, you you gave me a memory. I was reading that. I remember getting a D in conduct because I talked too much. (laughs) I'm sure I probably got a few of those myself. Yes. We weren't actually being bad. Bad, bad kids. Um, so you had a very large um, Italian family, yes. that, uh, and you grew up in New Jersey. And it reminded me a little bit of the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. I wanted to ask you if all of that um, family being there and in your life 
Um, did you embrace that when you were young, or did it ever feel kind of intrusive? I didn't know anything else. You know, I had all four of my grandparents came to America in the early 1900s and settled in Camden. None of them spoke much English ever. Uh, in fact, some of them didn't speak any English. Uh, we, My mother was one of eight children that all lived around one another. Uh, and thank God, you know, in some ways, my father was an only child and very introverted and quiet and 10 years older than my mother because we didn't have a big family on that side. I don't know what we would have done if we had both. <laughs> you would have needed a second home. We would have. Yeah. But we spent every Sunday together, every holiday, every birthday. So I don't, I didn't know life any other way. I did start to notice in junior high that other people's families weren't necessarily like ours. And sometimes it could have been a little awkward. But when I look back now, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's mm -hmm. part of who I am. Uh, our family was very open. We we were very inclusive. And uh, we had an awful lot of fun. Yeah. I think sometimes those types of families bring you a sense of security. That's a lot of love. Always and, a right? safe place. Always a yeah, safe always place. Always safe place. Always people who care about you. Uh, you. You knew that. It was part of the fabric of your life. Yeah. Um, you described yourself when you were younger as um, a dreamer, mm -hmm. and um, there was a time when you were dreaming about being a journalist, mm -hmm. which I loved, um, <laughs> or an architect, mm -hmm. um, but also loved being the president of every club. Well, yes, I yeah. was a bit of a dreamer, to say the least, but I was sort of uh, a little fickle about what I wanted to do. So for a while, I wanted to be a writer and a journalist, and then I kept diaries and wrote stories, and I made, I would have to have a club to have people enact the plays or the stories. Uh, and then I would want to be an architect and builder and plan cities, and then I'd build things out back. I don't know, my parents sounded like they were pretty indulgent. Or then I <laughs> wanted to be a designer, and I was in my mother's clothes and rearranging things and whatnot. But for all of these, I seemed to be forming these clubs that would support whatever it was I was crazy about at the moment. And I would always have to be the president of the club. And my sister at one point, she, my younger sister, mm -hmm. uh, she sort of rebelled and yelled, why can't I be the president of the club? Why do you have to always be the president of the club? And I had never thought about it. Like, well, who else was going to be the president you of the club? You were the oldest. These were my ideas. But I, but I brought in the neighborhood kids as well. So mm. I guess I was destined to sort of... Uh, I don't know, create things and hopefully influence people in a positive way. Yeah. Did you have any insecurities as a young girl? Or were you, re I mean, did that confidence for leadership come at a young age? I think the biggest thing when I think back is just the insecurity of going to school and uh, knowing you're going to get in trouble <laughs> was, was probably the biggest thing. I, I really don't remember a lot of insecurities. Uh, yeah, I thought my family was odd sometimes. You know, I think that goes without saying because we were a little different. Uh, I think that, you know, having your grandmother who's in the house and cooking and wearing an apron and doesn't speak English and you bring your friends over sometimes seemed a little odd. But I don't think I had that many insecurities as far as acceptance or having ideas and acting on those ideas. I enjoyed high school very much because I was able to grace, really happily convince my parents that I didn't belong in Catholic high school. Mm -hmm. And I tortured them for an entire summer. And finally, I was able to attend 
the the public high school and found my way there. Uh, was a member of, played sports, was a cheerleader. I made a lot of friends and really enjoyed it. And some of my cousins were my classmates. Oh, that's <laughs> nice. Yeah. So I had uh, a lot of fun even with them and actually one cousin in particular, we're the same age. We have many of the same mutual friends and we still have those friends. So I really can't say that there was uh, any deep insecurity that I can can think of. Do you speak Italian? Did your grandma teach no, you Italian? Uh, I, they did, but it was dialect. So it was, because remember, they came over in the 19, early 1900s. Mm-hmm. So Italian wasn't the, less, the language that it is today. The small right. villages and towns had their own dialect. But when I retire, one of the things that I have on my list of things to do is to learn how to speak uh, fluently in Italian. Mm, that That's a great um, mm-hmm. goal for mm-hmm. you. And, and I should mention for the listeners, uh, I'm speaking with Adrian Kirby, CEO of Cooper University Healthcare. And um, it is it is public knowledge that you will be retiring yes. in June, June 1st. So I do want to talk a little bit uh, with you later in the show about, you know, what your plans are. Uh, we're going to be right back. Stay with us for Dawn Zier of Nutrisystem and Holly Dowling for our Leadership Watch. We'll be right back. Now, the women to watch. CEO Watch. Hi, I'm Dawn Zier with today's CEO Watch. Today we're going to talk about your career and that female thing. As women, as we begin to grow in our careers, we have the opportunity and almost the duty to reach out to our female colleagues and help as they begin their careers. Last week, I talked about the importance of being mentored and mentoring. Today, I'm going to talk about being a woman in a leadership role. It's hard to believe, but in business, it's still a relatively new phenomenon. Though the numbers are growing, women still hold less than one-fifth of C-suite roles. And out of the Fortune 500 companies, less than 5% are led by female CEOs. And that brings me to the female thing. Often, as a woman leader, I get asked to join women-only organizations, to speak at women-only events, and I've been the recipient of several women-themed awards. It's important to participate in these events and activities. It's an honor. But I would also caution that your gender shouldn't be part of every equation. Don't wear it like a badge. Don't let it define you. My strong preference is for us, as females, to not be classified as a subset of executives, no matter how smart or accomplished we may be, but to rather participate in the broader gender-neutral arena, in my case with the other 95% of CEOs. Why segregate oneself? Why settle for less than the whole? That approach defines my thinking around gender equality in the workplace as well. I look for the best athlete when it comes to hiring, promoting, and rewarding employees. Gender doesn't come into play in my final decision-making. However, I am very conscious when hiring to make sure that I have a diverse pool of candidates to draw upon. Diversity in the workforce is proven to drive stronger performance across all levels of the company as well as in the boardroom. So here's my advice. Be the best in class. My goal is to be the best CEO, not just the best female CEO. Do your job well. Remember, results speak volumes and are inherently gender neutral. Thanks, everyone. I'm Dawn Zier here for CEO Watch. I'll be back next Sunday to talk about why you should embrace change and step out of your comfort zone. Have a great week.
Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Hi, everybody. Holly Dowling here with your Leadership Watch Nugget of Inspiration, and I'm really excited today. I have continued to share with you this powerful program that is basically I've taken 20 years of working with leaders and created the Extraordinary Leader. And today I want to share with you one of the biggest takeaways that continues to happen from leaders that I just was with this last week. And it's so simple. Again, this is common sense. Most of it's just not common practice. And where this goes is, are you asking the right questions? I mean, are you asking the right powerful questions? Because we spend so much time, whether it's with colleagues, our direct reports, whether it's with family members at home, but we spend so much time in the past. And what that means is we start conversations with why. Why did this happen? Why did you do this? Why are you doing this? Can I recommend one thing? My challenge to you for the next seven days in every conversation you begin to have at work or at home, lose the why. Yep. You heard me. Lose the why and start asking what and how. You want to change and have magical conversations, and especially as a leader of others. Start asking, what are you working on, and how can I support you? What's going on in your world, and how can I support you? What's working? What's not working? How can I support you? What and how can change everything for you? So starting today, lose the why and start asking what and how. And if you're interested in knowing more about Extraordinary Leader, it's coming for the first ever public event that's being hosted, and I will be in Salt Lake City on April 2nd with C-suite leaders from around the country coming in to experience Extraordinary Leader. Love for you to join us. Please reach out to me. Let us know if you want more details. And as always, I always want to hear from you at hollydowling.com. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. I'm having a wonderful conversation this evening with Adrian Kirby, the CEO of Cooper University Healthcare here in the Philadelphia area in Camden, New Jersey. Um, I have another quote I wanted to share with you because I think this says a lot about you and your role. Um, over the past 40 years at this hospital. Kevin O'Dowd, a former chief of staff uh, for Governor Chris Christie, said, Cooper Hospital has experienced tremendous growth under Adrian, with revenues rising from $823 million in 2012 to more than $1.3 billion last year. Tell me what you attribute to that financial growth. Well, um, I've been at Cooper for seven years. I've been 40 years in healthcare. Okay. I started my career in 1979, actually as a registered nurse. Um, but, I, well, it's a team effort. I think um, one of the things that we've done at Cooper is really redefine ourselves in the marketplace uh, and 
become our destiny, so to speak, the as the academic tertiary care provider for Southern New Jersey. We at in 2012, we were a strong organization. We were a good organization, but we really hadn't defined ourselves well. We were looking more at the community hospitals as um, our competition, and really we should be looking at the academic medical centers as our competition. We, feel, we formed multiple partnerships, one with MD Anderson, clearly that has redefined cancer care in our region. We saw an 80% growth in our, in our cancer care population from that partnership in the first five years. We uh, formed partnerships with community hospitals by helping to put services in those hospitals, such as having critical care coverage, having physicians in the hospital to take care of patients, covering the emergency medicine department. And those were all Cooper doctors that we put in the facilities to help them give better care and to keep those patients local and close to home. We've also worked on access. How can a patient get in for care, service? Are we meeting the needs of the patients and their families? All of this was part of a major strategic plan that we implemented in 2012 and then carried out over the last five, six, seven years. Um, you're managing you know, operations and you're leading strategic initiatives in this role um, for an organization, you know, a, a very large organization. And that's a daunting task, I believe. Um, tell me what rattles you, if anything. So there's so much. Where's the list? But, uh, <laughs> you know, think about this. It's a 24-7 operation. We have 100 locations across the southern part of the state, uh, you know, offices and outpatient centers and urgent cares, as well as a big 635-bed tertiary care trauma center. Uh, we have over 7,000 employees, 800 doctors. Just think of all the moments in time that something could go wrong. Right. Yeah, exactly. So if you really spent your time uh, allowing that to sort of weigh down on you, you wouldn't be able to get anything done. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of things that can go wrong. And unfortunately, it's a people business. Uh, so you have to manage a variety of people from people who are at the front end of maybe uh, housekeeping to physicians with MDs and PhDs who have done great research. <clears throat> so you have a really very varied workforce. So part of it is really around a setting a very clear, communicating clearly, setting a clear vision for people. You know, I say that you have to plan uh, with your head, but you lead with your heart. And I mean that because all the data in the world and all of the processes and, uh, and, and execution skills and competence are not going to get people 24-7 to do what you need them to do. They have to connect to the why. And the why is the heart of what we do. And for me, it's been, I'm fortunate being in healthcare because of all the missions that there are, if you, to be able to connect people to the mission of caring for other human beings, of helping them get through the joyful times, the sad times, all of the things that we experience as we have the privilege of taking care of patients and their families, I believe sometimes I have an easier job of helping our team across the organization connect to the why than ma many other uh, CEOs do. But it's really been important for us, myself, the whole leadership team, to, to use our heads wisely when we plan, when we make decisions about where we're going, what the strategy is going to be, 
But the implementation of that has to be with the heart. People have to know what you stand for, and you have to get them to believe in where you're going, or you will not be successful. And I think the last comment I would make is I learned very early on that healthcare is a team sport, and you do nothing alone. And if you don't engage the people that are actually doing the work, you'll be unsuccessful. Here's the question for you relating to that. Do you Is there one thing that you look for in your team, whether it be someone who's working in maintenance at the hospital all the way to the, you know, the top doctors? I, I think clearly, you know, we, we do now screen new employees for service um, aptitude. It's hard to believe, but there are screening tools out there that say that I can serve others. You know, we have turned away really experienced people because they don't have that aptitude. So it's about not only your competence and what your job is, but also your values. And do you want to serve others? Do you enjoy serving others? Because if you don't, healthcare is not the right field for you. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I look for in people uh, that they connect to the importance of what we do, that they honor the importance of what we do, and that they really want to make a difference in the lives of other people. You know, a big part of your story is that you stayed in one place for quite a long time. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, were there times where, you know, perhaps you thought it's time to move on um, and you just realized this was the place for you? Or did you purposefully say, I'm, I want to stay with this one organization and really take it through some growth periods? over time? Well, you know, I joined Cooper in 2012. At that point, I thought I would be there five years. It's been seven. Um, I always had a life plan to sort of move on and do other things. Uh, and having started my career such a long time ago, I've worked for a number of healthcare organizations in this community. Uh, the furthest I've gone is I went to Maryland for a few years and was the president of a hospital there. But I feel specially connected to Cooper and I'm happy that this is where I'm going to be uh, sort of ending my, this part of my career because I was born there. Oh my gosh, yes. that's right, that's right. I want to talk more about, you know, kind of your, your next steps when we come back after the break. Stay with us for Dr. Marianne Ritchie for our Health Watch and Terry McDermott for our Finance Watch. Now, the women to watch, Health Watch. For Health Watch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. March is Colon Cancer Awareness Month, and last week you had a quiz. So let's review what we learned. Colon cancer is equal in men and women. Your risk increases if you have a family history of colon cancer or colon polyps. Obesity increases risk for 13 different cancers, including colon cancer. Smoking increases risk for colon cancer, not just lung cancer. And race matters. African Americans have a higher risk of developing colon cancer and dying from it. So let's continue. Number six, breast cancer is the most common cause of cancer death in women. Fiction. Breast cancer is the most commonly occurring, but the number one cause of cancer death in men and women is lung cancer. And the number two cause in men and women is colon cancer. In fact, more people die from colon cancer than breast cancer. Number seven, colon cancer may increase your risk for other cancers. Fact. Colon cancer before age 50 increases your risk for uterine and ovarian cancer. Reverse is true also. Cancer of the uterus or ovaries before age 50 increases your risk for colon cancer. Number eight, all polyps are cancerous. Fiction, most polyps do not become cancer, but all cancer begins as a polyp. So no polyp is my friend. 
Number nine, if your colonoscopy shows no polyps, you can wait for 10 years to your next exam. Fiction, if you have no polyps and no family history, you wait 10 years. But even if you have no polyps, but a positive family history, we look again at five years. Number 10, the only test for colon cancer screening is colonoscopy. Fiction, there are other tests like stool tests, virtual colonoscopy, but colonoscopy is the best way to remove polyps before they become cancer and find early cancer when it's easier to cure. So get screened for colon cancer, and this diva doctor reminds you every week, treat yourself like a diva or nobody else will. Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG. If you believe that family, charity, or money is deeply important for the greater good, Fortis Wealth invites you to a highly personalized financial discovery process to help you visualize your financial legacy. It's not for everyone, but if you're willing to invest the time and thought, they can offer advice and strategies to help you accomplish your dreams. Fortis Advisors is a wholly owned subsidiary of Fortis Wealth, an investment advisor registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Visit Fortis-Wealth.com today because tomorrow is waiting. Women to Watch, Finance Watch. Hi, this is Maggie Carrado from Fortis Wealth. Today's world requires us to be so diligent when it comes to cybersecurity. With the almighty dollar being the primary goal of any cyber criminal, financial firms always have to be monitoring. I'm a member of the Cybersecurity Committee here at Fortis, which we form to ensure we keep up with the latest threats and recent breaches. We also try really hard to relay our findings to our clients to help them keep their businesses and homes safe from cyber attacks. And even more importantly, we have an internal process to protect against fraudulent money movement requests. Which reminds me of a story from a colleague, Christine Gambeski, who intercepted a sophisticated fraudulent wire request. Here's Chris. Thanks, Maggie. Hi, everyone. It started with an email from my client's assistant, or so we thought. What initially triggered my suspicion was that he attached a scan file to his message containing the wire instructions. I know from working closely with my client that he always forwards emails, receiving received requesting payments, and never initiates the email with an attachment. Another red flag was that his email used terminology that was unlike any other that he typically sends. He is a direct and matter-of-fact type of communicator, and this request leaned way too much on sweetness and included excessive amounts of the word please. So Chris, what did you do? Since we knew that this client was traveling outside of the country, we replied to the email and asked him to call us. We immediately received a message back saying that he was in Germany and had no access to a telephone and to please process the payment. This cyber criminal actually knew the names of the people who had the ability to wire funds and also the current location of the client. If our office did not have an established policy to verbally speak with clients to confirm transaction requests, this could have actually been processed. Our suspicions were validated once we called the client directly and we discovered that he had no knowledge of any wire request and could see no evidence of these emails in his account. Wow, that is scary. Bottom line to the listeners, ask your financial professional how they handle suspicious requests and what their policy is on money movement, email communications, and protecting your hard-earned wealth. This is Maggie and Chris, and we're from Fortis. You're listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. 
Welcome back. I'm talking to Adrian Kirby, the CEO of Cooper University Healthcare. And I want to correct myself. Um, Adrian's been there for seven years, but in healthcare for over 40 years. Um, still a significant amount of time to be in one place. Um, tell me, I am, I'm always curious about people's leadership styles. And maybe there's a mantra that you live by, something that you believe motivates your team. Can you describe that, what that would be? Well, I think I really, I enjoy engaging people. I enjoy uh, figuring out what are what what are their unique skills and how do we leverage them at the best we can. Uh, I believe in team sport of and participation uh, in leadership. I don't think any one person has all of the answers. So I think my style is very much that of a conductor. When you think about an orchestra conductor, Mm -hmm. they certainly can't play every instrument, but they know how to set the pace, they know how to set the direction, and they know how to sort of bring everything together to make it the best that it can be. Mm -hmm. And that is really what I like to think of I'm trying to do, and I do on a daily basis, and the things I think about at night when I'm driving home about what could could we have done better and what is my role in getting the team to work more cohesively or getting the team to go in a certain direction. So that's probably my leadership style. Uh, I know that, again, you just can't accomplish anything on your own. You have to have your team with you and all functioning at the highest level. Right. So looking ahead, which June 1st will be here before we know it, yes. and you will be retiring, uh, I'd like to know two things. Um, what are you most afraid of, and what are you most excited about? So I'll start with the first one. I think the thing I'm most afraid of is, you know, this kind of a, of a role is very fast-paced. I mean, things come at you all day, every day. And it, like I said before, it is op- we're operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So there's a pace and an intensity of my job that I've just been doing for a long mm-hmm. time. Now, I've, I like that. I like the pace. I like the variability of it. It works for me. It wouldn't work for everyone. Not everyone can compartmentalize sort of stress. Uh, I've been able to learn to do that. I've had to do that in order to be successful and survive. So I'm a little fearful of, boy, you've been playing ice hockey (laughs) for all this time, and now you can't go do fly fishing. You know, you have to find something in between. So it's really still for me, as much as I'm looking forward to it, is what is the transition going to be? Mm. What I'm the most excited about, and this is going to sound kind of crazy, is being a person. Uh, being able to have the luxury of time, because mm. I don't have that. Mm-hmm. I haven't had that. The luxury of time to to do the things I really want to do, you know, learn Italian, play piano. I have this mantra I say all the time. I'm doing Pilates and yoga every day. Um, <laughs> on the beach. Uh, on the beach. <laughs> but, In Avalon. But I, I'm looking forward to having the freedom of time, traveling more, being with people more, having the time to really pay attention to my family, my friends, in a way that's a little bit more meaningful and thoughtful than perhaps mm, it has yes, been. Right. So I'm really excited about it. You know, I'm obviously not going to go from this to doing nothing. Mm-hmm. And part of my transition is I'm very interested now in governance. And I've started to talk to some private equity back companies and, and others around serving on boards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I at first thought I was really going to look at just public companies, but I'm finding in my discussions What's much more interesting for me are these private equity, healthcare-related companies 
that actually might bring solutions to healthcare. Mm. That uh, I think, with my experience and having been a customer and also knowing what the real pain points are, I could add real value in a governance role where you're guiding more than doing, where you're mentoring yes. more than having yes. to be the you know, execute. So right. I'm really looking forward to that. And I think that's a really going to be a great place for me to be. Is there something you can share with us about what you would like to see change in general about our health care in this country? You know, it's such a hot topic. It, it is a hot topic, and rightfully so. Um, it, it's just, there's so much that needs to change. It's really a convoluted system. I mean, you look at Healthcare. Most of the healthcare that's being delivered in this country is still not for profit, according to tax structure. But yet, we can't raise our prices. We're completely getting revenue pressure to push down how much we get paid for everything, while labor costs go up, supply costs go up. But we buy from a largely for profit, from largely for profit businesses that can raise their prices at will. You know, the IT. Um, spends for major organization for every organization has been major and really eaten into our um, profits or our margins as we call it, so that we can't reinvest back in the business but those companies are making billions of dollars and no one's questioning that mm. so i really think we have to take a fundamental look at healthcare i believe most americans believe it's a right so if we think it's a right the whole financial structure of how we pay for it, how we access it, has to be looked at and considered. Mm. I think that's one of the biggest questions. Is it a right or not? Yeah, oh, it is. It's it's one of the biggest debates. Um, I want to talk to you just about women in general, leaders. And um, do you believe women today are facing the same challenges as we did 30, 40, 50 years ago as far as um, uh, succeeding in, in a career? Well, I would I would have said no a little a couple of years ago, but after everything that's happened recently that we've heard in the media, I would say yes. Uh, you know, I'm one of maybe 13 percent nationally of women CEOs in healthcare. We're an industry that's 85 percent female, but yet the CEOs there's only 12 to 13 percent nationally mm-hmm. that are CEOs in in healthcare. So clearly in my industry, we haven't seen that translation of helping women move into leadership roles. Maybe when we come back, we can talk about what you think those reasons are, because it's definitely multifaceted. Uh, Stay with us for the break. Mary Manzo with our Tech Watch and Hanadi Shahabuddin will be with us for our Diversity Watch. We'll be right back. This is the Women to Watch Diversity Watch. Peace be upon you all, this is Hanadi with your weekly diversity segment. On March 14th, a gunman opened fire during a Friday prayer in two mosques in New Zealand, killing 49 people and leaving 20 seriously injured. The gunman was streaming live on Facebook the mass shooting he proudly believed was the right thing to do. The incident involved two other men and one woman. The culture of hate in the West is not an organic movement. The industry of hate is a multi-million dollar industry that is intentional, well-structured, and has mostly political objectives. 
At the origin of it is the spreading of misinformation about Islam by specific media outlets. Women are oppressed and inferior, Islam is a violent and backward religion, etc., etc. These ideas are being promoted intentionally and sometimes unintentionally by journalists and people that do not really know what they're writing about and promoting assumptions without much critical thinking and investigative reporting. Quote, ask those who possess the message, if you do not know, end quote says chapter 16 in the Quran, meaning ask the experts, the people who possess the knowledge. The verse also suggests that I do not know is the right answer sometimes when people do, do not verify the information at hand. That's what journalists and regular people should do when they come across a piece of news, get to the source of it to validate it or call it out and bury it right there. Forwarding unverified information or news is equally part of the problem. Another verse in the Quran instructs believers to investigate a piece of news brought to them so that they do not harm people by their ignorance. It's a duty for every person to validate and verify from experts, stop the spreading of misinformation and hold people accountable. Today's prophetic ethic is verifying and validating information and what a timely topic to talk about. The first person who greeted the gunman said, hello, brother and encountering an unfamiliar face in the mosque before he was sent to meet his Lord. May mercy be sent on all those who lost their lives today and patience be granted to the family and loved ones. Let's get to the bottom of this. Peace be upon you all. Who is Holly Dowling? Holly is a dynamic keynote speaker and inspirational thought leader. You see what we have the ability to do and the power we have. You hold the power for good. Each and every one of us can do something. Holly has inspired millions around the world, including over 500,000 executives, and her show is listened to in 87 countries. Now we're going to spend 25 minutes on your areas of opportunity. Listen to our internationally acclaimed podcast, A Celebration of You, Holly Dowling, empowering those who can change the world. HollyDowling.com. Now, the women to watch. Tech Watch. Hi, I'm Mary Manso from Pathways Consulting Group. There are approximately 26 billion users of social media, and the way these sites are used can have positive and negative impacts. After reading a very sad article about a young girl who was bullied on social media, I felt the need to broadcast this segment. Did you know that Generation Z, Gen Z, doesn't know a world without smart devices and, according to some reports, spend as much as three to four hours online a day? I personally think it's more. When I asked my niece, who's 17, why she thought her generation uses social media, she said to communicate with friends, share information and photos about themselves and others. She told me her and her friends feel it's important to have a social media presence. But social media can create a lot of anxiety for girls. They worry that friends or family will post an embarrassing photo of them or that their post will be ignored, oftentimes they're the recipient of cyberbullying and harassed by others, which can damage their self-esteem and reputation. Girls often share personal information which leaves the door open to predators or online scams. In one survey, I saw 85% of girls receive a friend request from strangers and 44% of those girls accept the requests. That's scary. How do you know when all of this is a problem? Girl or boy, if they're spending too much time on social media, they can become disconnected. You may observe a lack of enthusiasm for offline activities. You may find it difficult to hold a conversation with them, and their grades may be slipping. 
If they're the recipient of cyberbullying, you may find their self-esteem has dropped and they're isolating themselves. My advice is to get educated and share this education with children and teenagers. There's some awesome web forms like reachout.com or kindcampaign.org that provide insight and guidance for adults and the Gen Z. Your local schools will have information too and can help guide you. Please get educated on this topic. You'll be shocked at what you find. I'm Mary at pathwayscg.com. Now more of Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. I'm really enjoying my conversation with Adrian Kirby, CEO of Cooper University Healthcare. And of course, we talk about, you know, women in leadership roles and we know the percentages are low across all industries. The question is why, and I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, and some women don't want to be in leadership positions, which is perfectly fine. What do you see as, um, you know, one of the problems for women who want to be but aren't getting there? Well, I think leadership in our country, probably internationally, has been largely, leadership positions have largely been held by men. And so when they think about bringing more people into leadership, they think about people like them because that's who they know who are other leaders. You know, so we just haven't paved enough of a way to move and help women who want to be leaders advance through whatever industry they're in. You know, we do know from the research that diversity does lead to better outcomes and businesses that have more diverse boards that have more diverse leadership end up having better business outcomes. So the literature's out there. Uh, I, I don't know. I think there's a lot that has to be done. I think the one thing I would ask is that men really think about how they view their female colleagues. Is there somebody they could give a hand up to, uh, Mm -hmm. to help uh, to have more diversity at leadership? I also think an important thing is we have to think about how we raise our children. You know, are we giving subtle uh, sexist messages to our sons that girls are different? Uh, You have good girls, you have bad girls. I mean, all that stuff only leads towards women being looked at as different and not good enough. And unfortunately, that is gets into the subconscious and it can lead to the way decisions are made long term. Mm. I think that for young women today, um, we're a lot more aware of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good thing. And that can lead to more opportunity. So I think that one thing is that who whatever wherever you are in your career as a woman, you're not going to be successful if you don't have thick skin. You can't take offense easily. You have to assume good intention and you have to just keep plugging along. Uh, and I do believe that there will be uh, more women in leadership roles in the future. Yeah, we're seeing it for sure. Yes. We're seeing yes. it now. And I think one of the um, positives of all of the conversations we're having is that we can we should and we can embrace that we are different. Women and men are different. Um, but intellectually, you know, we have the same abilities. And that's what we're starting to see and, and believe. You know, women need to believe it. Oh, absolutely. You know, we are different, um, but we also have a lot of areas of overlap. Mm-hmm. You know, we all want the best for our children. We all want to be good people. I mean, there's a lot of commonality mm-hmm. between men and women, but there are subtle differences that can uh, lead towards higher, you know, better outcomes and a better run company and organization. So I'm with you. I, I believe it's going to get better, and I certainly hope it will be. But again, the Men still hold a lot of the positions of of power across the con- com- country in business, and the thoughtful 
uh, proactive approach to helping to give women the opportunity is still needed. And you know what I see sometimes that I think is a shame? I think a lot of times people go um, into uh, work or jobs or careers with good intentions. Then when they get to a position of power, they lose their way, right? Yeah, and I, I think people, by human nature, we want to protect what's ours, right? Our position, where we are, and... I think if that's what motivates you, everybody has a little bit of that or a lot of that. You have some of that. Mm-hmm. If that's what motivates you, then it's, it's better for you to keep other people out, right? Mm, right? And so that's a whole other conversation. It is. Right? <laughs> a whole other show. <laughs> Tell me what you think about um, the 24-hour news cycle. Um, you know, and you have a daughter, we should mention, and two grandchildren, yes. which you're going to be spending more time with. And I often talk about this information overload that we have and we live in that and it can be a burden Um, but it's also uh, you know the ability to have knowledge and know what's going on in the world is a is a positive how does the 24-hour news cycle affect you and how would you like to see it um, change perhaps for your daughter and your grandchildren so i think that i have learned to sort of uh shut it down a little bit and limit because it can be overwhelming. And I have a lot of people that I know that are junkies and they're just always constantly looking and reading. And I believe that it has hindered our ability to uh, to really have dialogue in some ways and to really debate because everything that comes at you, we people think is true and most of it is not fact-checked very well uh, or very deeply. So I think in a way, going back to the old days of you you read the New Yorker, you look at Vanity Fair, (laughs) you know, you read the newspaper uh, is not a bad thing. And it's maybe having a balance of the two, the immediate with also the thoughtful, the ability to debate, to have dialogue and form your own opinion. Mm, And that's really the thing, you know, does this constant push out of the 24 hour news cycle prevent you from really thinking about anything deeply yes, and forming your own opinions that really reflect your values as a human being. I agree so much with that. I see in my young children who are adults, adult young children, um, struggling to to be independent thinkers because of the information that is presented to them. And, And I try so much to encourage them to be independent in their, in their, uh, thoughts and opinions. And and you're right. I think it's tough. It really is. And you have to have independent thought or you're not going to be a full person. You certainly can't be a good leader. That's right. We just have a moment left. Any um, advice for a woman who might be listening that is also approaching retirement? What would you like to leave her with? I think it, think of it as an adventure, which is what I'm going to be doing. Uh, And I think most of the people I've talked to who are thinking about retiring or have retired are pretty happy. Uh, So I think it's a a really interesting time of our lives. And I'm looking forward to exploring different avenues. Right. I I thank you so much for joining me today. And I think your story is inspirational on many levels. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Thank you so much, as always, to our sponsors and contributors for helping me to bring you the real story behind her title. Here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Have a great week, everyone. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.